So I've landed from about two stories in the air. I threw the bike away and I landed on my feet, severely breaking my right foot. I broke my left foot, broke my lower back and broke a few ribs. But I was lying in hospital and I was like, okay, I gotta see this thing. So I whipped the blanket off, I looked down and I was instantly relieved. Like it felt like a massive weight had been taken off my shoulders. the ways that biomedical engineering is looking at incorporating genetic material from the sole of the foot into the skin of this dump socket interface. And it shows that these are very real problems that uh, amputees come into contact with every day and that people are thinking forward and things are going to look different in the future. Hello everyone and welcome to today's SASMA podcast. My name is Dr. Kerri-Ann Walton, aspiring sports physician and avid sports enthusiast, both personally and from the sideline. Today, we have the privilege of welcoming two guests onto our show. The way in which we'll run the podcast is to spend the first half of the show speaking to our first guest, Travis Warwick-Oliver, then the second half receiving some always appreciated insight from our well-known guest, Professor Wayne Derman. So let's get started. Travis may be an unfamiliar guest to some of you, but he certainly shouldn't be. Travis is 30 years of age, he has an older sister and a twin brother. Travis's family are all good athletes. He himself has a commendable sporting record with achievements in swimming, trail running and off-road motorbike riding. On the 20th of March 2020, Trav was involved in a motorbike accident that crushed the bones in his right lower limb. He underwent seven surgeries in 11 months trying to salvage the limb but unfortunately they were unsuccessful as the damage had been too extensive. The bones underwent a vascular necrosis and caused Travis chronic pain. The decision was then made to perform a below knee amputation which he underwent on the 25th of February 2021. Trav, would you like to share with us a bit more about what you went through? In 2020, in March, I uh, had a serious motorbike accident. My throttle jammed before the takeoff of a jump. So I pretty much landed from about two stories in the air. I threw the bike away and I landed on my feet, um, breaking severely breaking my right foot. I broke my left foot, broke my lower back and broke a few ribs. Rushed off to hospital and yeah, the, the, the rest of the injuries weren't too serious. We were quite concerned about my, my um, right foot. The doctors went in and amputation was on the cards, the first surgery that I went through, but luckily they were able to, to try their best to save the foot. So yeah, it was quite, quite an intensive procedures that followed. I had uh, seven surgeries in the 11 months a lot of rehabilitation. I think we started doing rehab about two months in, um, after the accident, just so the bones could heal. That was probably the worst part of it all. It was just excruciating pain, getting the physios to, to try and move and manipulate the foot and get everything moving and going again. I didn't have any movement to my foot. I probably had about 10 to 15 degrees movement, um, uh, dorsiflexion. And yeah, it was just quite a rough time. And after the 11 months getting addicted to a lot of the painkillers I was on, on sleeping tablets, the pain just became very unbearable. So in my mind, I knew something um, drastic had to be done to stop it. I just wasn't too sure yet. And I ended up swimming quite a lot. And because I've always swum, I ended up deciding to try and swim the mid-mile mile 16 miler. So that's mid-mile mile 16 times. And yeah, training was going great. And then one day, 
I was just swimming and I got this really weird sensation in my foot and got these hot flashes and my foot just started burning. So I phoned the doctor up and said, listen, doctor, something's not right here and you come in. Ended up going in, getting more scans and it turned out that the necrosis was quite bad. And I had um, my foot had shrunk probably about three centimeters in length because of the bones collapsing. And yeah, the doctors said, well, we need to start preparing for the next few surgeries. And I wasn't too sure what that meant. So I thought they were probably going to just put a few more plates in that in. But the only suggestion that I, that I had was to get a fully fused foot. And I have a good friend of mine who had one of these in grade 11. And just seeing his lifestyle from going from very sporty to not being able to, to be active like he used to be, it put me off this. So this is when I started researching the amputation and it was very hard for me to find anyone in South Africa with amputations that were active and I ended up reaching out to some people in America to this girl Jackie and eventually finding someone in South Africa his name is Chris who is a South African BMXer and I phoned him up the one day and I said this is my situation this is my story do you mind if I come meet up with you and I can just see you know how you live your life with your with your, your prosthetic limb and he said, yeah, I've got an appointment with my prosthesis down at Durban Prosthetics. And why don't you just come jump in and, you know, you can come visit with them, them with me and talk to them. So headed off to Durban and I got out the car and I limped down, you know, the parking lot and he got out his car and he did this like a rugby sidestep. And from that moment, I just knew that's, that's exactly what I need to do. I need mobility like that again. So my mind was made. And then, yeah, it was just going through the process of, letting everyone else know that this is the decision I'd made. Let the doctors know. They kind of said, listen, if you want an active lifestyle again, this is probably the best option. We can't tell you to have an amputation because, you know, we try to save your foot the best that we can, but you will be a lot more active with, with the prosthetic limb. So then it was now trying to fund the prosthetic limbs and I ended up getting a motorbike donated to me and I raffled this and I made 250,000 Rand, which enabled me to get my first limbs. Pre-surgery was quite a big, you know, I had to do a lot of things to get healthy. So cut alcohol out completely, out my, my diet, um, clean my diet up completely. Still focused a lot on rehabilitation. So I did a bit of research and someone let me know about hyperbaric chamber therapy. So I spent 40 hours in total in a hyperbaric chamber. So 20 uh, pre 20 post yeah and it was just cleaning up my act as best as possible to give myself the best opportunity to heal luckily I was in the best position where I could choose my surgeon we could decide how far down the leg to amputate so everything was in my favor for the amputation which was I'm very lucky and fortunate for 25th of February 2021 I, I went in and had my my leg amputated and it was quite crazy. I remember waking up from surgery and I was like, okay, couldn't feel my leg because I had epidural. And uh, the epidural started wearing off and my foot just started like, my leg just started lifting because obviously I wasn't used to having such a light lower limb. But I was lying in hospital and I was like, okay, I gotta see this thing. So I whipped the blanket off, I looked down and I was instantly relieved. Like it felt like a massive weight had been taken off my shoulders. But then I was thinking, oof, now the pain is gonna kick in. So I got sent down to just a normal surgical ward after being in ICU and they took all the pain meds out, took the epidural out and there was no pain at all. And I was like really shocked because 
I'd walked into the surgery in excruciating pain every step I took. Just had my leg amputated and there wasn't a stitch of pain. They sent me home with panados. So it was just a, my face changed from, from being in excruciating pain, having my leg amputated and driving home and with no pain at all. Like I was a completely different person. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a story. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm really sorry that you had to go through all that, but I'm so glad that surgery has improved your quality of life and given you the opportunity to be active again. So now we get to the real crux of today's podcast. Travis is by far not your average athlete. So post-surgery, he has done the mid-mile mile, 16-mile charity swim, triathlons, is back riding motorbikes and trail running. Yeah. Four months after his surgery, Travis went for his first run on his new blade. Six months after surgery, he ran his first trail run. But not just your average trail run. He ran a 50-kilometer technical trail run. At seven months, he completed his first 50-miler. Then last year, April, he attempted his first 100-miler. Travis had to withdraw from this event at 137 kilometers, not by choice, but due to a stump blistering. On the 28th of April this year, he took on the beast again. This time he made it to 114 kilometers and had to withdraw because his socket was rubbing against his calf on the steep downhills. I would love for us to talk to Trav about all the elements he has to consider when preparing and taking on an event like this and see if we can assist him in using his own words not letting the next 100 miler beat him. Trav, I found it so interesting talking to you about all the extra things you have to consider during your training and then the race. I thought a nice way to approach it for the listeners would be to start from the foot up, if you're happy with that. Okay, so firstly, your phantom limb or foot. A lot of people purely associate this with pain, but you explained how it has positive elements too. Yeah, so I don't, I mean, I don't get phantom pain as such it flares up maybe twice three times a week but i've got constant feeling in my feet or my foot i can move my toes i can move my foot up and down and i just feel with the proprioception this really helps me with placement of my foot when running because i can actually feel where my feet are and i don't have to look down to know where i am with my with my blade so yeah the proprioception really helps i mean i can balance on my prosthetic limb like i can balance on my on my normal leg so it's really helpful when i do get the phantom pains which i do get sometimes it feels like someone's either pulling my toenails out stabbing the bottom of my foot or my foot on fire i just slap the bottom of my stump or just tell myself that your foot's not there so you don't have the pain mm. Then your blade, please explain all the things you have to consider with regards to this. Yeah, so blade setup for me is is quite challenging, um, well, for my, my prosthesis. Um, because I'm trail running, you know, a blade, you set it up and it's at a certain height. And obviously when you're running, you put a lot more pressure on, on each foot, individual foot. Um, so normally with a blade, you'll set it up for running um, to get your hips in line. But because I trail run and I do these long events, I do a lot of hiking. So if I had to set my blade up for running, it would be too high for when I hike because you don't put as much pressure on it. So we kind of get a, a middle setting where when I run, I drop my hip a bit and when I walk, I raise my hip a bit. But it's just, I mean, you know, it's just what we have to live with because there's one setting and you stuck with that. Mm. Mm. Okay, and then 
The socket, what are, what are some of the problems you have encountered here? Yeah, so a socket's custom to your leg at that specific time when they make it. So I know with the distances I run, I sweat a lot. So I get a lot of um, volume loss in my stump. So we have to pack it with socks. And when you pack, the more socks you pack, the less feel you have because, you know, it's a lot softer. It's not that rigid feel. If the, if the socket's too tight or if I pack it too much, I actually lose feeling in my foot. I'm not sure if it's the tib or fib, the side, the side bone. Fib. The fib, yeah. Mm. So my f I, I know if I get, my foot goes numb, I just take my leg off and I just squeeze and my fib actually clicks and it brings feeling back in my foot so I'm not too sure if a nerve gets stuck there or something but yeah the you know it's very difficult with with running these distances and getting the right fit with your leg um, it's also just trial and error you know you can cut the back down a lot more to get a little bit more extension um, but then you you know you hinge too much on the bottom of your, st your stump so you end up getting a bit of a callus in the front of your leg so we're just playing around at the moment trying to find like the best setup for me now and your, your recent solution. <laughs> yeah, so my, my recent, uh, yeah, it was a very scientific solution <laughs> that we found. Um, so I used the ladies bra, those stick-on um, silicone bras. So I put that at the bottom of my socket just to give it a bit more cushioning on these longer runs. Because, um, yeah, with the, with the stump losing volume, you obviously sink into the socket a bit more and you end up hitting the bottom, bottoming out, which can get quite painful. So... Yeah, these, the silicon um, bras just made a world of difference for me. Now probably the region that causes most individuals with amputations the most problems, your stump. In a race like UTD, what do you have to consider? What problems do you encounter with your stump? And what solutions have you found thus far? So at UTD, I really battle with altitude. If I put my leg on in South Africa, drive up Sony Pass, get to uh, the highest pub, my stump just swells up, so I have to take my leg off and just readjust things. You know, and then heat is a, plays a major part in, in how I can perform with my stump because obviously I sweat a lot. Our liners are non-porous, so the sweat builds up in those liners. For instance, this last UTD I did, I probably had to stop every two kilometers, take my leg off, take my liner off, drain the sweat, put it back on. Sheesh, we've tried, I've, oh, I haven't even tried baby powder because I just know it will turn into like a mush. I was about to go get surgery where they go into the spine and they nick some nerve to stop you sweating, but I pulled out of that. I was a bit too afraid. I've tried Botox, um, really expensive. It costs 5,000 Rand. Okay. Didn't work for me. I'm not too sure if maybe I metabolize it too fast or if I just sweat too much. But yeah, we've now just pretty much accepted that I'm going to be stopping a lot and draining the liner for, for the sweat. Yeah, but sweating, it's, it's a problem because as soon as you lose that contact with your liner, you get a little void at the bottom where the sweat sits and that causes the bottom of your stump to start moving a little bit, which causes blisters and a lot of chafing. And also because sweat is acidic, I find my skin gets really, really soft on the bottom of my stump. So after six, seven hours in my liner, if I just wipe the bottom of my stump, I actually lose like a layer of skin. Hence the reason why now I've just decided to stop whenever I feel a bit of sweat in, in, in the liner. There are some certain sprays that you can get, which are like just silver sprays that you spray on your stump. 
they last probably about half an hour and then the sweat breaks through. So apparently there's some technology coming out where they're making porous liners. I'm not too sure how it's going to work with the, the seal, with your vacuum. Um, but yeah, hopefully they do come up with a, with a solution because going in for surgery is quite a big taking to, to just stop sweating. Mm. Yeah. Would you say this is your biggest limiting factor at the moment, probably? The yeah, sweating. yeah, sweating is definitely what it's holding me back the most. So, I mean, UTD, I stopped my watch at 100 kilometers. My elapsed time was 26 hours and my moving time was 19. So that's seven hours of stopping. Yeah. yeah. But it's just one of those things I'm going to have to deal with and hopefully find a solution. When you looked into the surgeries, did you find any positive and negatives what made you eventually elect not to pursue it yeah so, so the doctor actually phoned me a few days before surgery and he says trav we've done this surgery on elderly people and women there is a five percent chance of impotency okay. so i said that's five percent too many <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i wasn't and i wasn't really you know ready to risk that sort of i know it's five percent but i'd rather not i'd rather sweat yeah. yeah. Also, I'm not too sure what the complications are if I did go and you know, I'm pretty sure I'd sweat more excessively in other parts of my body. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe have the opposite effect and be too dry. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But hopefully Prof can help us with some suggestions on that side. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of biomechanics, what issues have you encountered here? Yeah. So, I mean, for myself, it's just constant work rehabilitation i work with my bio a lot and you know it's because my, my my stump changes size my hips drop so i do battle quite a bit with you know lower back pain which then can go up the back and you know you get shoulder pain and neck pain but i just make sure i'm on top of going to see a chiro when i feel out of line you know doing the right exercises which make a world of a difference you know if i didn't do that stuff i, I wouldn't be running these races that I am. And just in terms of fluids and nutrition, do you find you have to take more fluid to make up for the fluid loss via your stump? And surely you must expend more energy when compensating for your altered biomechanics? So this lady that I chatted to in America, her name's Jackie, she did a study with a university over there. The conclusion was that myself and her spend about 25 to 50 percent more energy doing these races in an abled body because of all the compensations we have to do balancing and then with regards to fluid intake i definitely do drink a lot i wouldn't say that i sweat more on my leg i just sweat a lot um okay. so i mean both sides both legs sweat a hell of a lot so i wouldn't say that i drink more because of the amputation i just do have to make sure my hydration is up yeah, yeah. just someone who Naturally sweats more. Yeah, I just naturally sweat so much. <laughs> Maybe Prof can help me there. <laughs> I'm sure he'll so, have a so solution. Actually, yeah, actually, I was chatting to... So after deciding not to get surgery, I, I mentioned it to a friend, and she said that she has a friend that also has excessive sweating, and there are tablets that you can take, and you can purchase them quite easily in the States, but you can't get them in South Africa. So you pop these tablets, like you take them like a day or two before an event, and then you take them like every two to three hours, and it stops you sweating. Not too sure how healthy it is, but I'm sure there is a bit of research done that side. Yeah. Um, I've tried, you cannot get them in the side, like I've been to quite a few places, and you just can't find them. I will find out the name though. I know 
certain um, medications for an overactive bladder sometimes it's stop anti- yeah it's okay. like anticholinergics they tend to make people like their side effects one of them is like dry as a bone yeah i do not i'm, I'm just a bit so, worried like if i stop myself sweating at an event like this surely there has to be some yeah negative implications every one effect always comes with another yeah effect, so. okay Trav, please may you tell us a bit more about your passions, current and future. I only really looked into how much prosthetics cost after having my leg amputated. And, you know, a leg can cost but anywhere between 25,000 Rand to 150,000 Rand. And that's for a below knee amputee. When you start looking at above knee amputees, you can go from anywhere from 100,000 to 1.5 million Rand. So I was just having a discussion with my prosthesis and I said, bro, how, how do people afford this stuff in South Africa? I mean, I was super fortunate and lucky that I had the community, Hilton community, had people and friends from all over the world donating towards my cause and I raised 250,000 Rand. I said, how do people do this? Because medical aids don't cover much. I mean, I get 23,000 Rand a year from my medical aid. That's two liners and you're done. And he said, people don't afford it and you know, not having a dig or go at government, but it's just pretty much non-existence. So I said, well, I really want to start, you know, I've got a bit of a platform going and I'm doing these crazy runs. I want to start a non-prof. So yeah, we opened up a non-profit called Rejuvenate South Africa and we'll be providing mobility aids to underprivileged and people without the, the means or funds. So yeah, it's quite a cool project that we got going and we're catching, we're catching some nice traction at the moment. We've helped eight people so far. You know, we've provided three prosthetic limbs we've provided four wheelchairs and crutches to people you know around natal we're focusing a lot in natal at the moment just because we are a startup non-prof but yeah our goal and dream is to help as many you know people with this with a disability as as we can and the goal is to get big corporates involved one day just because of the expenses yeah i mean we're really keeping it low key at the moment and providing wheelchairs and very basic below knee amputees with very basic legs. The goal is to be able to help someone with a double above knee amputation one day, and that's gonna cost anywhere between one and three million rand. So once we once we get up and running, that's that's something I'm looking forward to doing. And yeah, one way of raising awareness is I'm gonna try my best to get um, abroad and do a few crazy races overseas. Gonna keep running here in South Africa. Next up is possibly Kalkloof 100 miler. And then obviously UTD again next year to try to get to that finish. Oh, Trav, yeah, you truly are an inspiration. Thank you. And then any last things you would like to add or ask Prof Derman? Yeah, so I wanted to ask if, you know, if hardening the bottom of my stump would be beneficial because a lot of people are telling me that I should put methylates or methylated spirits on the bottom to kind of callous the bottom because at the moment it's super soft. So I would like to know if, if maybe that would be you know, a step going forward to, to try to help the stump survive these runs. And you know, I'd really like to know if there's any other procedures or surgeries or you know, maybe medication out there that can stop sweating. move on to the second part of our podcast where we'll be speaking to Professor Wayne Derman. As mentioned earlier, I'm sure many of you are well versed with who Professor Derman is and all his achievements. But for those of you who aren't, 
Professor Derman is the Executive Head of the Department of Exercise, Sport and Lifestyle Medicine, as well as the Head of Division of the Institute of Sport and Exercise Medicine at Stellenbosch University. He is currently a co-director of the IOC Research Centre in South Africa and heads up one of two FIFA Medical Centres of Excellence in Africa. He is also the chairperson of the International Paralympic Medical Committee. His research focuses on secondary prevention of chronic diseases of lifestyle and injury and illness prevention in athletes with and without disability. In 2022, he was awarded a National Research Foundation B1 rating. I had the privilege of completing my MSc in Sport and Exercise Medicine at Stellenbosch University under Professor Derman's guidance, and I'm truly honored and grateful to have him join us today. To start, Prof, would you like to share with us how you first became involved with athletes with impairments? Mm. Kerry, now you're taking me back, eh? Okay, so I had done the Chief Medical Officer role for Team South Africa for the um, Sydney 2000 and Athens 2004 Olympic Games. And when it came to Beijing, I put in my application to be the Olympic team physician as well. And um, I got a letter back from SASCOC telling me I'd been allocated to the Paralympic team. And I was absolutely horrified. I like kind of think, oh my word, what do I know about athletes with impairment and disability? And I actually, my initial decision was not to go, is that I didn't have what it takes to actually deal with this. And um, yeah, I mean, I was, I suppose, a little bit immature in my approach and that I thought that my expertise lay in elite sports medicine care and that like kind of the Paralympics was infradig. But um, somebody else said, like, I must be more like the yes man, uh, like Jim Carrey, and like, take these opportunities when they come. And um, I, yeah, I, I suppose I said yes, and then was exposed to the Paralympic Games and quickly realized that this is as elite as Olympic level sport, and that these are elite athletes, and that I was going to have to learn and embark on a journey of um, actually the specialized medical care. And it was just the most phenomenal experience in sport and exercise medicine that, you know, in sports medicine, you are dealing with, um, with the, the um, orthopedic injuries, you're dealing with medical injuries, and you're dealing with human beings at the peak of performance. And now in Paralympic medicine, um, you've got all of that plus this layer of complexity of impairment and disability, um, which really gives you the ultimate challenge in sport and exercise medicine. And it took me a while to actually understand this. And then I got into it and this became my area of research and um, my area of focus of a lot of my clinical work that I do. So that's how I got into it. And then I joined the International Paralympic um, Medical Committee and uh, stepped away from the South African teamwork and looked at a more international perspective. And um, yeah, recently um, have been uh, made chair of that committee and we're busy planning for um, Paris now and the medical care for the Paris uh, Paralympic Games. And then for the winter Milan and Cortino games uh, coming up. And I've had just the most wonderful um, opportunities of, um, 
I think going to about uh, about six Paralympic Games in that capacity. And um, yeah, what a what a wonderful um, uh, experience and opportunity, and it's been an honor and privilege to be involved like that. That's amazing, Prof. Okay, and then I know you've been dealing with athletes for, with impairments for many years now. Have you ever come across athletes trying to conquer such grueling events like a 100 miler? So, uh, you know, a 100 miler typically isn't um, any of the Paralympic type sports. But um, what I have seen is that every now and again, um, you get a Paralympic athlete that decides to try something phenomenal. Um, like uh, Richard Whitehead, who's a bilateral above knee uh, amputee, who then uh, chooses to run the Comrades Marathon. Um, so you, f you find athletes like that uh, all the time that choose to like, take it to the next level. Um, so a 100 miler... Um, yeah, I suppose that's quite that's quite long, and it's a hundred mile trail um, challenge as well. So that brings about with it um, a whole lot of new challenges. So whilst I've heard a lot about uh, athletes that do extraordinary things, that's one that I haven't heard of before. Okay, so now for the part I think Travis most excited for, Prof. Do you have any advice for Travis and his aspirations? From what my experience is with, with amputee athletes is that it takes a long time for the, the brain and the body and indeed the spirit to adjust to something uh, like an amputation. And that in my mind as a sports physician and clinician, I see an amputation as an injury and then we look at the return to play guidelines. Uh, as somebody recovers from the amputation operation procedure itself, then getting back to physical fitness, the brain having to adapt to an entirely new biomechanical setup where there are prosthetic uh, uh, features involved. First of all, in locomotion of everyday activity, and then locomotion in sporting activity. And there are different prosthetics for each of those. Once one has adapted to that, then there is the um, next step, which is to return to the specific sport. And my advice to Travis is to undertake a sequential increase in the complexity of the events that he desires to do. And that might look like, uh, first of all, um, taking to a stable surface like a road. And once one has mastered uh, road running, then to move to longer distances on the road, then to adapt to the more complex a type of running which is trail running where one has got an unstable environment and train at shorter distances on the trail environment then increase that 
to longer distances on the trail environment and conquer those distances and sequentially then and in a systematic way go in an increasing manner to get to this ultra distance that he wants to undertake. And this might be a journey that uh, can take people a long time in order to get there. And every now and again, um, we are surprised by how short a time that people can take to get to their goals. So it is such an individual variation from athlete to athlete to actually get to have the what it takes to actually do one of these extraordinary events. But in my experience, it's been uh, a lot longer to actually get up to withstand the forces and the changing environment uh, that Travis wants to undertake. And um, I, I, I do wish him a lot of speed and a lot of luck with that transition as he gets to where he wants to go. The main problems Trav is running into um, are, as I think with most athletes with amputations, is with his stump and then um, his socket. So one of the things Trav did want to know is whether trying to harden your stump at all, like by soaking in things like meths or anything like that, would be beneficial at all prior to the races. Kerry, what I, what I hear Travis asking about is, is about stump socket interface problems. And um, for the listeners who don't quite know what a stump socket interface problem is, let me try and sketch that. So uh, what happens post-amputation is one is left with a stump. Uh, the stump has to then articulate with a prosthetic device that is used to propel you forward, which is the, the prosthesis. But between the prosthesis and the stump itself, and the skin of the stump, there is a socket. And the socket is that device which transmits the forces onto the prosthesis itself and propels the person forward. Now the interface between the uh, stump and the socket is a very highly technical device called a liner and that can be made of various different um, materials including silicon and other um, more modern materials it can even have uh, materials embedded in that like for example it can have um, uh, certain substances that decrease sweating it can have antibiotic substance in it, the variety of these various different technical liners. And um, essentially the stump socket interface is an area where a joint is formed that is not really supposed to be there. So there is an interface where these forces are transmitted where the skin has to deal with these pressures and change from the fluctuations that we call them. And that skin is not really designed to do that. Now, for example, when, when, when we are walking around, um, 
we have our soul of our skin, uh, the skins of the soul of the foot that interfaces with a sock and then a shoe. Some of us will use that um, soul interface with the ground directly if you walk barefoot. But one is born with a genetically thicker skin of the sole of the foot. So there is, for example, a lot of differences between the skin of the sole and the skin of the stump uh, halfway up the tibia, which uh, has to deal with these forces. Um, examples are a very much thickened stratum corneum, uh, which is the outer layer of the skin, and a very, very tissue-diverse epidermal layer, which has got much thicker collagen bundles and much more different types of keratin involved. So you can see that the soul is a technically specialized area, whereas the skin of the stump is not uh, as specialized. So this presents itself as a problem because that is an area of uh, skin breakdown. And skin breakdown can be just like a stress fracture for an athlete without amputation. It's like, you know, catastrophic because if you get infection in that area and skin maceration, you just can't, it will stop you running every time. So that's why we, we call it like the stress fracture analogy. So athletes will try and um, use different uh, techniques to try and get that area of the skin to adapt. And really there's only one way, and that is the test of time and the forces that are gradually applied that will actually allow that skin to slowly uh, develop a thickened stratum corneum and maybe try and um, adapt some of the other uh, tissues in the skin. So are there shortcuts? Can we uh, soak the skin in methylated spirits, for example? And as in many areas of medicine, there are, you know, every time you do something, there is a, yes, you might get that skin to dry a little bit. But the problem here is that you're using uh, an alcohol-based solution, which actually does two things. Number one, it dries the skin out. So if you get a, a skin that's more dry, it's more likely to crack. You also decrease the normal um, resistance layer of the skin by inducing uh, and soaking it in alcohol. And you don't get the uh, ability to fight off infection. So there are two problems. Secondly, is that you can get a very bad contact dermatitis from methylated spirits. So again, uh, no real quick fixes with that. So, you know, what can somebody do? I, you know, for me, the most important thing that um, I've learned about um, amputees and, and running is, is just how important the fit is of that stump socket interface and how important the relationship 
with um, the prosthetist is. Because that is the prosthetist's specialized area. It is that stump socket interface. So the first person I would advise Travis to bring onto his team is the prosthetist. And uh, let the prosthetist know about the uh, desires to uh, go and do an extraordinary event like this. And allow the prosthetist to actually guide him as well as to the little tricks and traps that can happen with respect to the liner and it's all about that liner and then secondly the socket and how one can actually uh, deal with that. Via your answer here Prof, I think you have answered his next question. It was just that often prior to the races Traven will try and rest the stump and use crutches um, which he wanted to know if he should or he shouldn't be doing this um, and whether this is deconditioning the stump further. Yeah, Kerry, it's a, it, it is an, an interesting question. So um, we're talking about uh, offloading the stump and we're going to be talking about loading the stump while he's doing uh, his event. So in the um, immediate time before he uh, does his event, he might indeed want to offload the stump. I mean, if you're going to offload that stump for a 24-hour period prior to the race, you know, you're not going to actually decondition that stump at all in such a short period of time. So by all means, you know, you can uh, give that stump a, a, a break uh, for a short period of time before. But I wouldn't um, advise like kind of longer than 24 to 48 hours um, where you don't use it at all. Perhaps so. Travis mentions that one of his most limiting factors is the sweating of his stump. Obviously in these events he sweats a lot um, and is finding this to be his most limiting factor just in terms of that loss of that stump socket interface and then also bl blister formation. He was wondering if we can ask you about any means to reduce sweating and then the pros and the cons thereof. Um, Together we had spoken about conservative medical and surgical elements and he had said that in terms of conservative, obviously it's that liner that you mentioned and he had heard of, well he's tried antiperspirant sprays without much success. He's heard of liners that might be more absorbent which he's trying to source and then medical, he had heard of medications that might reduce sweating. I said that these might be anticholinergics but then obviously all medications come with their positives and negatives and I don't know if these are then going to place them at risk of obviously dryness of the stump and other adverse effects like hypothermia. And then, then the one that he had specifically looked into was a sympathectomy. Thanks for asking that question, Kerry. I, I think that the sweating uh, within the stump socket interface is a, a problem that uh, people are going to face. Again, that area has not really been used to having something over it encasing it like a liner and a socket and uh, it makes it very hot in there and then you do get a lot of sweat building up and the problem with sweat building up is that it causes a pistoning uh, environment where the stump then pistons in the um, in the socket and that can cause a potential for skin breakdown so um, what are the, uh, the solutions to that? Well, 
the first thing is that, again, um, with respect to sweating, socket fit is really very important. So everything is going to come back uh, to this issue of socket fit and liner. There are some uh, super absorbent liners uh, and there's some materials that are uh, very advanced that one can get from overseas that have uh, the, the lowest sweat inducing kind of materials that one can, can take um, and can get. Secondly is um, hygiene, so that if we are going to sweat regularly, it's really important that the materials are washed uh, regularly and taken off regularly. So, you know, that this would mean in, the, in, in a prolonged event like he's doing to actually remove those at various pe periods of time and actually clear the sweat out and he might need to run with a, um, a support crew that actually helps him with a variety of different liners so that he's able to change these at various uh, times. And they can be washed and the interesting thing is that you needn't have a very specialized solution to wash this. This can be soap and water and dried out uh, well. Um, so also the um, sock, if one does use a sock uh, or other um, materials around the stump also need to be kept uh, quite clean. My third bit of advice is um, just look and take care of ex uh, any pathology that that happens with the stump. So you would need to inspect his stump very, very often to look for the start of what we call stump skin, which is a tiny little abrasion. And those tiny little abrasions um, need to be taken care of very, very quickly um, and, and rapidly. And that can be um, uh, taken care of by various different ways. Then there is the sweating itself. Now, you must remember that sweating is a normal phenomenon. It's a very important physiological phenomenon whereby the body thermoregulates. So Travis is in a situation where we've got to now balance thermoregulation with sweating in that area. And um, we can talk about localized solutions and you can talk about more generalized solutions. So a local solution to this problem is, and when I'm talking about local, it means of the stump itself, is one can use antiperspirants. And this can be the antiperspirants that like, kind of we use on a day-to-day -day basis for our axillas, for example. And sometimes that's sufficient to use that kind of a solution. And for some people it's not. Now it sounds like for Travis it isn't. He might be doing this um, in hot environments. It might be very warm while he's doing this 100 miler or building up to it. And um, it might be not sufficient and it might, you might get uh, an uh, overrun of sweat. Now, if that is the case, then you can get what we call a medical-grade antiperspirant. 
And that is a 12% aluminum chloride solution. And the 12% um, aluminum chloride solution can be found in specialized amputee stores. Um, there's some great online ones running out of the United States. And you can get that more concentrated, like a medical grade solution for the stump. And I'd advise him to try it um, and see if the higher um, concentration uh, works. Um, the reason for that is that the alternatives are not great. So Travis wanted to know about um, more um, systemic solutions, like, for example, anticholinergics. And, you know, whenever one um, uses a drug and takes that into a body, there are certain side effects that are potentially caused by that. Now, an anticholinergic, you're going to block all cholinergic receptors right the way through the body. And his entire sweating is uh, going to be down. And you don't want to do that because you want to thermoregulate um, normally. You don't want to uh, give yourself a risk factor for heat illness. So I wouldn't advise uh, any anticholinergic uh, drugs. Um, there are other solutions, I think, that you mentioned, like a... A sympathectomy also again you don't want to you know risk an abnormal physiological response um, by going through surgery and then having a wider area that's affected by this uh, sympathectomy uh, and all the other kind of side effects of doing something really radical like that there antidepressant medications some of them which have been found to be of value to stop sweating again you using a systemic drug. And systemic drugs, when we've looked at some of our big uh, cohorts from ultramarathon uh, runners and looked at people who've landed up in medical tents at the end of that event, it's always drugs that actually are, and, and medications, that is a common theme of those people who have more severe uh, medical events happening at ultra-endurance eventing so um, I did also want to say that there's another one that's been documented that's interesting and that's Botox like locally in using Botox injections in and around the stump to decrease the sweating and that's an interesting one but the uh, risk of that is that you change your stump volume so you affect some of the underlying muscle that muscle atrophies, and then what happens is you get a poorly fitting stump, which now when you sweat is going to piston inside there even more. So my take-home message is, is that you know the, for every <laughs> for every uh, intervention there's a possible uh, downside to it, and the the one that stands out as being perhaps the best is looking at a higher grade aluminium chloride solution and seeing if that can assist him somewhat. Thanks, Prof. Lastly, post-race, do you have any good advice for him on blister and wound management and dressings? So, I mean, bl bl blister is like 
It's like that stress fracture waiting to happen. So the, the main thing is to prevent blisters occurring, is to get your prosthetist on your side and involve the prosthetist in, in the whole journey. Um, early recognition of skin abrasion before it gets to the, um, the, the, the fact that you've uh, got a blister. So all of the correct fitting advice, the sweating advice, all of those things are very, very important. The uh, constant um, inspection of the stump to actually see are there any areas of potential breakdown and blistering. And then while this long event is um, underway, what one can do is you can, in small areas of breakdown where you think a blister might be occurring, then to start looking at small silicon pads that one can get, uh, telfer dressing, which is a very like a thin uh, film sheet that you can uh, use. You can um, get a very, very good product called uh, Spenko Second Skin Blister Kit. And that gives you various different um, size coverings for skin that might be in the process of breaking down. Um, and then preconditioning of the skin is also very, very important. So there are um, wonderful products that uh, someone is able to source from this online amputee store, and I would encourage um, Travis to go and have a look there. Uh, their products uh, like a product called Adapt Skin Ointment and Skin Protectant and a Spot Relief, which can be used to precondition the skin uh, to prevent these um, conditions. Then in just if you can identify an area of higher friction to uh, look at amputee essentials, chafe barrier creams and um, ultra-rich uh, moisturizers and balms that you can use to uh, pre-empt uh, pre the blisters being um, formed. So that um, it would be good to go and visit that website and go and have a look at some of those uh, various different uh, products. Um, and I think one of the most important things is that for a blister, there is no better uh, covering than a skin covering. So one doesn't like and doesn't advise to pierce the skin uh, or pierce the blister and necessarily let that uh, fluid out because you are going to get a frictioning. So you would... At the very worst, if you have to do that, you've got to pack that over with uh, one of these um, second skins. So that would be the only thing. But leave that skin covering on. Don't take that away. But again, that is absolutely the, the last thing to do. Because you want to prevent this happening. And again, I come back to my advice is that the body needs to adapt to loads over time and that this is a journey and that the skin will adapt over time. But 
one needs to get there in increments and not just go in at the top and um, think the body is going to withstand all of the loads that are placed on it in this very kind of stressful environment. Thanks, Prof. And then he also just asked, after blister development, obviously we're going to have to help SNL to prevent getting to that extreme, but he has had uh, quite a few bad run-ins with blisters and while trying to do these events, and just asked whether, now you've said obviously the first choice would be to leave the blister as it is, but if he has developed a blister to the extent that the skin has been removed, he's always torn between leaving it open to dry, using things to dry it, like obviously the old-fashioned mercurochrome and methylate, versus uh, dressing it and uh, approaching it more with, with a, like a moist wound healing type approach. And if that, you do advise that, any dressings you advise on? It really depends on how thick the, um, the blister is. If the blister is, is like a really thick and it's a large blister, then that's your stress fracture. You're going to have to um, dress it uh, depending on the skin itself and how one heals. You know, to use something that like kind of uh, allows it to dry out. But then if you are going to dry it out, then you don't actually put weight back onto it. And um, so you've got to give it the respect that it deserves because you don't want that infected and then getting a cellulitis uh, and all the consequences of that. So, you know, once you've got a large blister like that, that, I mean, that equals time off the leg, regardless of which way you go and, and treat that blister. And how you're going to treat it is going to depend on how that person typically heals, what the experience has been in the past, how the depth of the blister and if it's infected or not. Okay, and then any last insights or things you'd like to add before we close? What is interesting, uh, Kerry, is uh, in the future, looking at some of the ways that biomedical engineering is looking at this particular problem of stump socket interface uh, problems is experimental but it's really very interesting is that there are units that are looking at incorporating genetic material from the sole of the foot into the area of the uh, skin of the stump socket interface so looking at incorporating that genetic material into sole skin grafts or taking cells from the sole of the foot, growing it in a laboratory and then transplanting it into there, looking at uh, injection of fibroblasts that trigger collagen formation into that area um, of the skin. Yeah, looking at various different other uh, biomedical engineering options uh, in this. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, quite interesting to, uh, it, and it shows that these are very real problems that uh, amputees come into contact with every day and that people are thinking forward and things are going to look different in the future. That's very exciting to hear, Prof. So to close, I'd like to thank you, Professor Derman, for your valuable time today and obviously Travis too. I hope you have all enjoyed listening to and gained some insight from today's podcast. If anyone would like to see what Trav is up to going forward, you can follow him on Instagram or Facebook as TurboTrav. And if anyone would like to find out more about Travis's NGO Rejuvenate South Africa, I will leave the links in the show notes below. Thank you.